0: Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in
1: order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy and supported by the UCLA History Department. My name is David Myers, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the third season of the podcast. Now, the principle of non-delegation, that Congress cannot delegate its legislative power to other entities, has become a lightning rod for conservatives, especially for those who believe that administrative agencies of the government have become too powerful and indeed represent the ominous deep state. Recently, the Supreme Court got into the game with its 6-3 decision in West Virginia v. EPA, which curtailed the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate carbon emissions from coal plants. In responding to the majority's limitations on the EPA, Justice Elena Kagan was apoplectic. She wrote that the court, quote, does not have a clue about how to address climate change, yet it appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision-maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. To help us understand how we got where we are, I'm pleased to welcome to then and now Julian Davis Mortensen, the James D. Phillips Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, who has written a major article in the Columbia Law Review titled, Delegation at the Founding. Welcome to Then and Now, Julian.
0: Thanks so much, David. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Great. So let's jump right in. The argument that won the day in West Virginia v. EPA, that Supreme Court decision that I mentioned, rests on the principle of non-delegation, an idea that goes to the very heart of the system of governance and separation of power in the United States. Can you explain what non-delegation actually means?
0: Governing is really, really hard. <laughs> and so one of the strategies for governing is to say, look, we, the legislature, know that we want to have a cleaner environment. We can't even begin to spell out all the ways in which any of these shared values and priorities might be compromised by new events or by um, you know, th- threats, to th- th- threats to sort of the public wheel. But what we can do is convey authority to authorize an administrative agency to make rules to handle the problems that are presented now and that will be presented in the future. Should we have airbags in cars? Should we have automatic seatbelts in cars? Uh, should, Should rules about washing hands be posted in bathrooms? At that level of granularity, society and the context in which government works changes so often that a realistic Congress might reasonably conclude that the best way to deal with this is to turn to an expert agency, set broad goals for the agency to pursue, and then trust in the democratic process as new uh, uh, administrations are elected to, you know, imperfectly but roughly reflect how our polity decides to handle these these changing circumstances as they emerge. That's delegation. Non-delegation, or rather non-delegation doctrine, have to do with the suspicion of the concentration of power and the worry that if you're putting in administrative agencies at the executive branch, the ability to both make and enforce some set of rules, I mean, that's a separation of powers problem that we should be worried about. And so non-delegation doctrine specifically is the idea that our constitution limits the degree to which Congress can delegate such that maybe Congress isn't allowed to say to OSHA, look, you decide which workplace hazards require the most regulation. We just." don't know, and it might change tomorrow. And that's the basic tension. That's sort of a nutshell (laughs) summary of the whole thing.
1: So great. So as you sort of articulate the rationale and then opposition, you also articulate two competing visions of the separation of power, a vision of the separation as you call it non-exclusive and relational. What does that mean? So there isn't
0: one right way to think about the separation of powers, The goal that I have is to engage with and fairly reflect the 17th, 18th century legal political discourse around the separation of powers. How do we handle allocating different authorities to different groups on the theory that splitting authority is going to make us all a little bit safer from tyranny? And one way to come at this is this idea of mixed government in which institutions reflect the interests of a social group that is responsible for choosing them. Counterposed to that is a vision of the separation of powers that says, what we're interested in is not dividing up the ability of coherent social groups to participate in the running of the polity. What we're interested in is looking at the functional phases of governance, which is to say the movement from conceiving of a policy to implementing it you might say something like, well, the king represents himself. So that's the easiest one to start off with. And what it means for the king to participate in the government is to have this range of powers, the royal prerogative, that include things like the war power It include things like regulating lighthouses. And it's a laundry list of particular subject matters over which the king has jurisdiction. And then you would have the same kind of conversation around what authorities does... Parliament have and what sort of social classes, what sort of estates is it thought to represent in the mixing of governments. So you're looking at, at institutions less from the question of what their function is, and more from the question of what kind of subject matters they control. Contrast that with the idea that what it means to govern is first to conceive of a policy, then to make the policy happen. And on that view, we're not talking about the powers that a legislature inherently has. We're talking about the legislative power as the power to make rules. We're not talking about executive power as the powers that a king inherently has over foreign affairs, over diplomacy, etc. We're talking over the act of executing the law that's created by the legislature. It's a very, this latter framework that I'm describing, that it, it, it is an incredibly thin framework. It just isn't that complicated to have the legislative power means you have the power to make rules that affect people and also to authorize things that could not otherwise be done. It means that the, like, the, there's always this mind body analogy. The legislative power is the brain that wills some state of affairs into being. And the executive power is the hands or the arms or the muscles that take the unmanifested intent and like grasp it into the world. It, it, you know, it's just thought action, almost like mind body.
1: And, well, and you can't, you can't compartmentalize in hermetic fashion, if I understand the argument correctly. So if I offer my own concretization, I would say administrative agencies can assume legislative functions by forging regulatory rules to advance their mission. That would be an example of a relational, non-exclusive vision of separation of powers. And that, in some sense, is really what is at the heart of the disagreement.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I'd I'd add just an additional step because... Certainly, a lot of lawyers are extremely formalist. The non-exclusive and relational part has to do both with the fact that an agency might plausibly do a rulemaking function and an execution function. There's nothing wrong with that historically in terms of governance practice over centuries.
1: In others, might make a legislative and an executive, have a, perform an executive and legislative function, and that need not necessarily violate the principle of the separation of powers.
0: Precisely. The second spin that I'd, I'd say, and just very quickly, is... There's a very real sense in which the agency that is making a regulation about workplace safety is literally in that same moment exercising both executive power and legislative power. And it's going to sound like I'm playing word games here, but this is how they talked about it. It's exercising executive power in the sense that it's executing instructions from Congress. Congress conceived of a plan. Congress said to the agency, here's what you need to do. You need to do these things, right? Dig this hole, build that road and make these rules. When you're digging a hole, when you're building a road, and when making rules, all of those are an exercise of executive power. But so too is it fair to say that the agency is not exercising legislative power, actually, when it's digging a hole. It's not ex- exercising legislative power when it's building a road. But when it's issuing rules, it is both executing Congress's instruction, hence executive power, and also, on a different sort of frame, stating the intent, the rules, the norms that are going to govern this area. It's both things at once. It's not either or.
1: Okay. Now, there are people who think that an administrative agency exercising legislative and executive powers is a bad thing. And those folks oftentimes rely on what they deem to be originalism. So what I'd like to know, since it's so bandied about, what is originalism?
0: Well, without dragging you and I guess more importantly, the audience down um, sort of angels on the head of a pin, the basic idea is the legal meaning of the Constitution is fixed when enacted. We figure out the meaning by looking at the original understanding of what those words meant. Sometimes individual words, sometimes whole phrases, but the, the choice made by you know a sub-sub-subset of like the people of the United States set rules in place in 1789 that cannot ever be changed except by the Act of Amendment.
1: So no vision of a living constitution whose interpretation is responsive to changing times and social mores, but we must adhere to the words as they were understood then and there. But here's the paradox. You use your own version of originalism. You use originalist tools to undermine the originalist claims of defenders of non-delegation who say non-delegation was rooted in the constitution itself. And what you do is undertake this exhaustive historical review, going through 10,000 pages of documents of a conversation held by the founders and political theorists whose ideas they relied upon. So first tell us what you found, bring us into the conversation of the founders, and then um, maybe address that seeming paradox of using originalist tools to undermine claims of originalism? A tall order, admittedly.
0: <laughs> sure. Let me let me start with the first, sort of what we found. I would say that the project came about because of my very strong intuition that the flat claims that I would come across from time to time by what I thought of as ideologues, sometimes mm-hmm. on the bench, but also sometimes in think tanks and so on, just didn't reflect what I was seeing on the ground in terms of delegation by the founding generation, whatever, whatever, whatever sanctifying words we want to use for them, that like that the things that were being said about the role of delegating authority to somebody else to resolve complicated questions. And if the founders would never have done that, they would have you know seized the bull by the horns and, and decided it themselves. I just sort of thought that's just not what I'm seeing. And boy, it really isn't what I'm seeing. It's not what I'm seeing. And so that ended up when um, this case at the Supreme Court was decided, uh, the Gundy case, in which it looked like after that case, there were five Votes not yet altogether in the same case, but there would be five votes for a non-delegation doctrine grounded in those kind of flat propagandistic claims about the founding. And so what we found was a combination of things. First of all, all kinds of delegations at every level of government with absolutely minimal specification for how it was to be implemented. True from the colonies, true from the states to the localities, true from the states to the Continental Congress, true uh, regarding the first federal Congress under the new constitution. I mean, there's just delegations everywhere. Because you can't function as a government otherwise. Absolutely, yes, certainly in historical context. And there's there's sort of this instinct at some level that I still can't quite get rid of, just sort of pointing at this stuff and saying, what are you talking about trying to make up rules that literally nobody at this period of time ever tried to enunciate about limitations on delegation, when the demonstrable evidence is they were doing it in every different direction. And by the way, and this is really important, without prompting objections. Right Like one thing that the founders were not short on was a willingness to like make up constitutional arguments. And it was, they, they were engaged in constitutional construction even after the adoption of the constitution. it was a It's an incredibly interesting time to work in because there you know there's not decades of precedent to lock in what counts as a good argument. So they made all kinds of crazy arguments. But this argument that there would be limits on delegation just never appeared. And I want to come back to your point, which is stepping back from kind of the theory and the law and the kind of you know what's in the four corners of statute books sort of debates. It makes such sense on the kind of cultural political background of North America, with the distances involved, with the lack of government resources, with the communication problems, with the delay in getting instructions from point A to point B. Like, of course, this is how they did it. And of course, they didn't have some notion of like divinely given rules about how government must work. They were just trying to get along.
1: So no non-delegation doctrine in the constitution, no non-delegation doctrine Uh, that emerged as a dominant motif in the thinking of the founders. No non-delegation doctrine throughout American jurisprudence until very recently, with a couple of exceptions that you note in 1935, which you may or may not want to reference. But clearly, something has changed. Um, I suppose this is um, a way in which the Constitution is living. Uh, Something has changed in in terms of our thinking about non-delegation. And This for you, again, I want to emphasize, is not a matter of arcane disputation amongst cloistered scholars. You write in your piece, this sort of counter-majoritarian tampering with a cornerstone of American governments could prove immensely destabilizing. I mean,
0: let me put a pin there and come back to it in 20 seconds. I want to say for the sake of fairly presenting the issue, it's not that there are no indications that people had attraction to making non-delegation noises about over-centralized power. You see that as the 1790s go on in a small number of Jeffersonians who keep losing. And they reason their way towards what becomes sort of this like nascent emerging idea that there ought to be limits on non-delegation for lots of reasons, including the text of the Constitution. So it's not that it came from nowhere. And indeed, I think it's important in fairly engaging with what seem like very aggressive, confident claims from ideologically conservative jurists to recognize that it's not that big of a stretch in terms of policy or instincts. To start with Proposition 1, hey, we need to separate powers, and then move to Proposition 2, well, if they reconsolidate powers on day one of the new regime, there's a problem with that. Like that actually resonates with me. And what's striking is the is the degree to which people don't put those together. And that when they do emerge in the in the end of the 18th century, they're just they lose the arguments lose over and over and over and over again. And they do pop up at state supreme courts from time to time in the 19th century sporadically. But it is fair to say there's no non-delegation doctrine pervasively in the 19th century either. So yes, on everything you said, but I want the Folks out there who are who are hearing this to also understand that it's not nothing, nothing. It's just nothing worth anything.
1: So it's a minority strain in American legal jurisprudence.
0: Yeah, but your question was about the risks of tampering with the cornerstone of American governance. I, as a normative matter, have the very strong intuition that the reality of governance is messy and institutional, and maybe not seat of the pants, but sort of rough and ready, and that when you have somebody let's say a judge on the supreme court who says based on my reading of the three words the executive power and the three words all legislative powers i think that there is a limit on the degree to which the epa can be authorized to regulate the coal industry i mean i, I almost like when i say it out loud like that i mean i'm biased but i almost think that like the idea refutes itself and Stepping back again to the kind of larger, I don't know, mythological theoretical point about what it means to judge, the power of judicial review is an awesome power, an awesome and like scary power, because it means judges relying on a document, most of which is more than 200 years old, to tell present day majorities, you can't do that because some vague language from this really old document could be read to disfavor the kind of thing you're doing. We've got to draw a line somewhere, so we're drawing it here. And I think that any competently taught con law course wrestles with that, quote unquote, countermajoritarian difficulty problem from very early on. We're sort of raised on stories of the civil rights movement and of Brown versus Board and like the heroic judges doing heroic things against obvious, I mean, I'll say evil. And yes, yes, and yes. But it also turns out that that involves a real massive systematic second guessing of political processes. And geez, we ought to be worried about that
1: you know, just to think of the sort of the political backdrop uh, to this decision and the movement to advance the claim about uh, non-delegation as more prominent in um, American constitutional law and history than you would think, it seems to me that opposition to delegation is, simply put, a means of opposing regulation. And if we think of the provenance of this new movement, we should go back to 1980 and the election of Ronald Reagan and uh, and Reagan's belief that government is bad and regulation is its chief form of oppression. So is this what's really at hand? I mean, is this what's going on? This is really just a, an attack on regulation as vested in administrative agencies that do the kind of work uh, that relies on expertise that in today's political culture seems to be disfavored.
0: Yes and no. How's that for a lawyer's answer? (laughs) Absolutely, 100% yes, in terms of the role the argument is serving. It is an instrumental argument that has the virtue of appealing to at least some of their deeply held beliefs about small government. And it's one of a suite of such arguments about legal structure that are kind of lined up next to each other to try to limit the amount of regulation that goes on. You know, the due process clause doesn't permit discrimination among funeral homes because that seems unfair. The free exercise clause doesn't allow the government to force employers to like offer plans with contraception. The commerce clause doesn't allow Congress to like regulate dumping in swamps because those are not navigable channels, right? Like there, it's, it's a little bit any tool at hand gets grabbed and used by a movement that is trying to limit what the government and especially, but not only the federal government does, at the same time, I think that there's lots of people making these arguments who believe in them, who want to believe in them, um, who are relying on reports from others who are in the kind of like epistemic community where they trust them. And so they they believe what they're being told by Justice Gorsuch when he describes the founding in thus in such a way. And so I, I don't think it's entirely or maybe even mostly hypocritical on the numbers, but I think that there's a very conscious effort to use it for a political end by a great many people.
1: Okay. Let, let me just ask, I'm, I'm asking you in some sense to understand those whose position is the opposite of yours, but does it not seem to be at some level absurd to ask of Congress or the Supreme Court? Let's think of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Samuel Lido, making decisions about public health or occupational safety that people who have spent decades of their lives studying um, and are qualified to do are supposed to do. What could be the possible advantage of non-delegation in terms of the proper functioning of government? It's it's hard to wrap one's mind around.
0: Sure, I mean there's some things to say and get back to. I hope about deference and humility when it comes to the judicial branch's assessment of the choices made by the political branches. I think that that to me is a central issue here that was ironically a lesson that I think of as having been taught to me by conservatives and specifically by justice Scalia saying, how could you possibly claim to know better than Congress about X or Y or Z? Um, I want to come back to that To, to, to channel the instinct as best as I can. There's a lot of statutes that delegate a shocking amount of authority to various places in the executive branch that can be used to achieve a whole lot of different things without a contemporary legislative deliberative discussion of whether it's a good idea. What's an example? So, you know, I mean, one that jumps off the pages right now, I don't actually think it's such an easy question, is the is the debt relief. Biden's recent announcement of debt relief to the tune of, I think it's $10,000 for a great many people, but not everybody. And it's been done under the, I'm forgetting the cute nickname for it because they always have cute nicknames. Ah, um, there's an act that was enacted shortly after September 11th um, that was intended to help primarily service members, but then the act is amended to include other people in disaster areas uh, to deal with the fallout from wars, disasters, et cetera, specifically as they materialize in their student loans. But the statute has words in it that I think actually plausibly authorize what the administration, with the Department of Education specifically, has done here, I don't think it's an easy question. I, I geez, I, you know, I, I'm, not sure. I'm not. Is that because that of
1: anymore. the budgetary consequences? Because it's granting the executive uh, branch basically the capacity to write checks that do not have proper congressional oversight.
0: Budgetary consequences, scale of the policy, removal of decisions that don't necessarily partake of expertise and change-oriented considerations, the way that like super micro details about what kind of coal plants should be able to operate, right? Should we cancel some portion of people's debt reads to me like a much more binary values-laden question. That I am absolutely not prepared to say as a constitutional matter has to be made by the legislature, but it leaves me uneasy how many different emergency powers statutes, how many different broad delegation statutes are sitting right now around the federal government in ways that authorize very often presidents and administrations to do stuff that is – Quite controversial and hasn't gone through kind of a legislative workover. I mean, here's the classic example. It comes out of my skepticism of some of this stuff comes out of my earliest experiences as a lawyer and a scholar uh, in the first decade of this century. It was the position of the uh, Bush administration, the second Bush administration, for a long time, that they didn't need authorization from Congress to invade Iraq. <laughs> right? Like th- there were ways that if you're really clever, you can kind of shove the invasion of a literal sovereign country into the authorization for the use of military force. There are ways you can argue for the constitution, letting the president do that. But holy cow, like I, when, when I think about my reaction to those arguments and the degree to which the idea that the president should be able to resolve a question of that magnitude, that's where I most understand the policy concerns of people who want some kind of non delegation. Done. All right,
1: From that skepticism that you yourself have, take us to what justice Gorsuch said and wrote in Gundy, the United States in 2019 that set off alarm bells for you. He makes some conceptual
0: claims that are just wrong about the essential nature of legislative power and the essential nature of executive power, and just misses the boat on the actual separation of powers construct that I described earlier, and says that only Congress can create rules that set broadly applicable rules of future applicability for private citizens. It's this weirdly gerrymandered definition of what legislative power even is, Set that aside. But to connect his dissent to what we've just been talking about, he leans into the idea that lawmaking is hard, and intentionally so. He goes on for at some length about all the veto gates, all the steps in the process that are built into the constitutional system by the Constitution from a generation that had some really bad experience with recent especially, but not only state uh, legislatures doing some pretty wacky stuff in the most sort of like high arch Republican vein where, you know, unicameral legislature like cancels all the debt. And part of the response to this situation, he rightly observes in the States in the 1780s was to say, geez, like we need to have some more checks and balances in how things happen. And so he leans into this idea that you're right, people who think delegation is important. It is hard for Congress to react swiftly to changing things. And it is hard for Congress to wrap its mind around like super technical, detailed questions. But that's the point. It was a a feature, not a bug. The the founders made this lawmaking process hard for a reason. And if you just short circuit the difficulty of moving from instinct that we ought to cancel debt to canceling the debt – you're you're misserving the values of the constitution that's 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 the sort of oomph the thrust of his of his dissent and it has some resonance it has some resonance as a policy matter i don't think it's a legal matter though
1: so you state in your article after mentioning Gorsuch's dissent in gandhi that it's hard to believe the court will strike down cabinet agencies anytime soon is that what we saw in west virginia versus epa Did, in fact, the court do what you thought it wouldn't do? I think
0: the answer is no, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried about what West Virginia versus EPA represents. The legal doctrine that emerges from West Virginia versus EPA is the major questions doctrine that basically says if a statute textually covers some area of governance, even if the words of the statute clearly can be parsed so as to apply to, let's say, the coal industry, if we think that in light of the larger purposes of the statute, the larger context of what the statute was adopted, that the text saying, you know, you can define pollutants, EPA, actually can't mean coal, that we will override not only the agency's determination to the contrary, but second guess entirely, the political branches' view that the the realm of pollutants generally was really meant to go to the EPA. So, essentially, a decision narrowing the power of the EPA, but certainly not eliminating it. I think it's most likely to play a role in undercutting the intent or expectation of Congress and of the sort of the structure of the legislation itself that we create these delegated structures of government precisely because getting laws passed is hard sometimes. And if we can all agree right now that pollutants are bad, and we're going to define pollutants in thus and such a way, and it, leave it to later administrative processes to give that further granularity, that bargain should be respected rather than undone, especially when the, the way it works out typically is, at least on a contested issue, when the Supreme Court says you can't do this, but Congress could always reauthorize it if it wanted to. It's actually pretty rare for that to happen, for all the reasons we've discussed. It's really hard to pass legislation, being basic rational choice theory, you know, hugely motivated uh, regulated parties versus you know less focused motivation from the public at large and the general good. I mean, there's all these reasons to think that most of the time, not always true, but most of the time, when the Supreme Court says, "Ah, oh, you didn't say it specifically enough," Congress, Congress is just never going to get around to saying it and that's the that's the worry i mean it's a very very complicated issue but that, that that's the worry about folks by people who think traditional administrative law um, would not have had a problem with what the epa did in
1: west virginia so i think what you're saying is the court has not felled in one decisive blow the administrative state but it did take a chunk out of the edifice and so my final question to you is where do you think we're going from here will we see a further howling out of the administrative state?
0: I I think the answer to that question is yes. Certainly, if this Supreme Court maintains the present structure, the 6-3 sort of conservative majority on especially separation of powers and administrative questions, the lack of reluctance to interfere with the independence of agencies with. Congress's ability to supervise the president – I don't mean supervise, to investigate the president with second-guessing what these enormous agencies have done on the you know, on, on backbreaking work over months and years by people who are working on really hard problems. The blithe self-confidence with which the current conservative majority simply drives a truck over all that when it sees fit – is a mood that is really unsettling to me as much as any of the particulars of what's been decided. So I'm I'm worried about any major liberally inflected policy-wise program that emerges from an agency rather than legislation. And I'm worried about agency independence more generally as being in the crosshairs of a conservative majority that is feeling its oats.
1: Well, on that ominous note, um, we're going to have to conclude what has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to thank you, Professor Julian Davis uh, Mortensen, for uh, for making time out of your busy schedule to be with us.
0: It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: And thank you to our listeners out there. I want to conclude by thanking my wonderful co-producer and Luskin Center Assistant Director Maya Ferdman, who is leaving the center to begin a six-month period of travel in Argentina. Thanks, Maya, for all the incredible work you've done for the Center and Then and Now, and best wishes for an extraordinary time in Argentina. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.